The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, June 23rd, 2014. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Tomorrow, primary in Mississippi, Thad Cochran, the incumbent, trying to face down the Tea Party candidate, Chris McDaniel. And who has joined the fray? Kiln, Mississippi's own, Brett Favre. I've learned through football that strong leadership can be the difference between winning and losing. And when it comes to our state's future, trust me, Mississippi can win. And win big with Thad Cochran as our strong voice in Washington. Favre's actually made another one. Uh, Let's see if we could hear that one. I'm Brett Favre, and I support Thad Cochran. First I said I didn't support him, then I did. Then I hinted I was back in McDaniel, then I opted out of being a block captain for him. But now I'm firmly back in Thad Cochran, because decisiveness is my fort. That's why I set out the primary. But you know, my years in the NFL taught me something. It taught me how to read a defense, how to throw a pass, and that it's no problem to send a snapshot of your own penis to a sideline reporter, but also leadership in schools and Wrangler jeans. So vote for Thad Cochran. He won't send you a picture of his penis. This message has been brought to you by the Mississippi Retirement, Unretirement, Retirement, Unretirement, Retirement Fund and Wrangler Jeans. One of those ads didn't actually happen. On the show today, in the spiel, I'll talk about people who really aren't qualified to talk. And then I'll talk to John Moe, who's written a book of pop culture correspondences. Think a diary from the man in the yellow hat. Or think the secret history of the ghosts in Pac-Man. But first, in Afghanistan, they voted a couple weeks ago. The results of that vote won't be known until July 22nd. But already there is turmoil about the legitimacy of the election. So we're going to actually take a broader view as we talk about how to negotiate like a Pashtun. President Obama has announced a near-total troop withdrawal from Afghanistan in the immediate future and an end to the war by 2016. That doesn't mean the U.S. won't be pressing its interests there. How do they do that? Well, the U.S. needs to be smarter than the 100,000 peak troop strength that once was deployed in Afghanistan. U.S. has spent $100 billion a year. Smart is what? Jonah Blank is talking about in an article in Foreign Policy magazine called How to Negotiate Like a Pashtun. Jonah Blank is a senior political scientist at the Rand Corporation and an anthropologist. He joins me now. Hello, Jonah. Hi, Mike. So, how to negotiate like a Pashtun. In a word, the answer is Pashtun Wali, but there is a lot in that word. What does that word mean? Pashtun Wali is the code of conduct that is common to virtually all Pashtun communities in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Uh, There are parts of it that are kind of familiar and parts of it that are very unfamiliar to Western observer. And so what would be uh, some of the hallmarks of Pashtun Wali? It places a really strong emphasis on hospitality, on family honor, and on revenge. A lot of it would be... um, kind of in line with what we might be uh, thinking of when we think of either an Afghan warlord or, for that matter, pretty much anyone living in a tribal society. You know, if you come to my part of the world, you can come as a friend, in which case we will be as hospitable as any human being is ever likely to be. But if you come as an enemy, you better be aware that we're not just going to fight you. Our grandkids are going to fight your grandkids. Uh, As you say in your article, people 
buy cars from someone they've never met in the United States. None of that would go on in a Pashtun society because of history, because of the necessities of living there. So what are some different ways to negotiate? In Pashtun society, every deal is an outgrowth of the relationship on which it's based. If you and I have no relationship, if we're strangers, then we're not going to be making a deal because I don't know you, you don't know me. Uh, There isn't a system of laws. There isn't a system of policemen, banks, all the sort of thing that that we Americans are used to. Instead, if we make a deal, how do I know you're going to honor it? Because my grandfather knew your grandfather, and my grandkids are going to know your grandkids. So both of us have a really strong incentive to, to play things straight and to honor our deals. So is there less double crossing in Pashtun society? There is less unintentional double-crossing. In Pashtun society, people do double-cross each other, but they know that if they do it, they're buying some trouble. So you don't just casually stab someone in the back. You stab someone in the back, whether metaphorically or literally, and you better be prepared for this fight to go on for a long time. So I guess the U.S. comes in, they regard a warlord, and they see the warlord is, or they see that he's aligned with, say, the Taliban. And so the U.S. thinks, well, we'll appeal to his venality, his logic, we'll flatter him a little bit, we'll make him see that it's worth his while to align with us. What doesn't work about that? That's a very Western way of thinking, by the way, so what doesn't work about that? In the short term, it might work because the warlord uh, may well take your money, but that doesn't mean that you've actually bought him. You may just have rented him. Yeah. To give you an example of what we could be doing and should be doing, in Pashtun society, you build relationships slowly over time. If you just walk in and give me a suitcase full of uh, $100,000, I'll be your friend for as long as it's in my interest to do it. However, if you, say, take a few months, a few years, you come, and, you come to my house, you have tea with me, you invite me to your house, you give me little presents, you know, maybe a small watch, maybe uh, some gifts from my kids, and you keep this up over the course of a few years, that's a much stronger and more enduring relationship in Pashtun society than a big expensive one. Well, since the United States doesn't have the option of going back 100 years and establishing roots in that society, which would seem to be the clearest way to uh, earn some face or to uh, earn some credibility, what can they do? What can they do as an interloper, as a short-term player, so that, you know, United States interests such as they are are advanced? There are things that we have that really mean something in Pashtun society. Courage matters. Strength matters. Ability to stand by your word matters. Mm-hmm. And these are things that, uh, that we can do more of. To give you an example, in Pashtun society, personal bravery matters more than sheer military might. So the fact that we've got uh, 100,000 troops, or used to have 100,000 troops, that didn't buy us a whole lot of respect. What does buy us respect is when we've got small numbers of special forces, SEALs, other, uh, any other troops who are able to, to show personal courage to the people they're dealing with, that gets a second look. And the good news is 
that's exactly the type of troop that we're going to be having on the ground for the remainder of our, of our time there. Now, Hamid Karzai, he's Pashtun, he's seen by Western leaders the United States as not that trustworthy. I think there's some great disappointment. There were high hopes for him. But um, yes, now he's seen as someone who's a double dealer. But wait a minute. Is that part of our misperception? Should we start looking him through more of this lens of Pashtun Wali that you're talking about? Yes, we should. Karzai can get very emotional and very angry over things that American interlocutors feel are not as important. If you take a step back, though, and think, what does Karzai want? Is he just in it for the money? Well, if that were the case, he, he could retire to the south of France, you know, with, uh, with, with a villa anytime he wants. What he wants is the respect, not only of his, uh, the members of his clan, the members of his tribe, of all Pashtuns, of all Afghans, he's concerned about his place in history. Mm-hmm. He wants to be remembered as the, the champion of the Pashtuns and of Afghans. And when he makes statements that sound crazy, you know, statements like uh, when he, he vowed to go off and join the Taliban if we didn't change our policy, when he uh, says other things that just drive us crazy, We've got to remember, we're not his audience. He's thinking about his legacy, not with us and not in the histories that we write, but in the minds and the, uh, the stories of the people he cares about. Well, Jonah Blank, you've been on our show once. This was your second time. I want to have you on many, many times in the future. And please accept this small, relatively inexpensive, but uh, handcrafted watch as a small gift. Okay. Well, well, Mike, thank you very much, and hopefully our grandchildren will be great friends. From the desk of the Rock and Roll City Department of Civil Engineering, Dear Mayor Slick, We shut down another overpass today. It was near collapse. I have to tell you, I'm getting a lot of angry phone calls, people freaking out about our crumbling municipal infrastructure. All I can do is ask them, don't you remember, we built this city, we built this city on rock and roll. Hey, I know those were wild times back when we did that. And I agree that it seemed like a really good idea at the time, but rock and roll, really any musical genre, is no foundation for a major metropolitan area. It was a terrible decision, and the consequences are becoming increasingly dire. Are you familiar with the civil engineering term hoopla, Madam Mayor? It's a slang term for raw sewage. Parts of the city are now knee-deep in hoopla. So begins just another of the many correspondences gathered in the book, Dear Luke, We Need to Talk, Dad. Dad is crossed out, and then it says Darth. And other pop culture correspondences. John Moe is the author of that book. He hosts a show on American public media called Wits, contributes to McSweeney's. John Moe, hey, how are you, John? Hi, Mike. Was there one piece that started it all? Yeah, the piece about James Taylor issuing an update on his friendship promise. And uh, this was an idea that I had when I was probably about 15 years old and I was in a car, I remember, and and the song You've Got a Friend came on. And the chorus, of course, just call out my name and you know wherever I am, I'll come running to see you again. And that was sort of the beginning of me like realizing how funny songs are if you take them literally. Yeah. And and what a burden that must be to James Taylor to just have to drop everything come running. 
that idea just rattled around in my head for years when I would hear the song. And then as I started doing more writing and writing for McSweeney's, I was reminded of it again. I must have heard the song again. I thought, well, okay, how would he be able to do that? He must be some sort of superhero. Yeah, or like and a Beatles, or maybe even trapped by it, like in a Beetlejuice-type existence. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think it's... Compelled to come running, yeah. Right, and then, of course, what would happen if that was real? Everybody would abuse the privilege. And <laughs> so that's what, that's what makes him a little pissed off in the essay in the book. I guess we just can't have nice lyrics. Right. Yeah. So it's good to have this framework of a letter because I have always said to myself, you know, a song that's celebrated, but that if it were to happen in real life would in fact be the most horrific thing humanity has ever seen is it's rain and men. So yes. that's a joke, right? That's a joke. That's an insight. It would truly right. be horrible. But then if you have the correspondence, then you have to cast it, right? Who would right. be, maybe it would be the cleanup crew of the town where the, maybe it would be the National Weather Service issuing an advisory about rain and men. Well, and who are these monsters who say, hallelujah, it's yeah. raining men? I, I mean, if they're using religious terminology and it's raining men, then you get into kind of a plagues, kind of a biblical thing. And so then you have all those possibilities that maybe these are witches or prophets of some sort. Or it could be a book of the Bible that never quite made the final cut, you know? Like when John <laughs> right. is talking about the beast with 666, maybe there was a reigning men part, and it was yeah, the, foretold. The, the book of Randy that nobody really bothered to put in the Bible. <laughs> and lo, there shall be weather girls upon the earth. <laughs> um, hmm. I was also thinking maybe there'd be an opportunity either in the voice of an odorless and colorless gas, or maybe a chemistry <laughs> professor writing to MC Hammer about why, in fact, you can't touch this. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Could now, be. Yeah, so where do you take that? Like, uh, first of all, I'll ask you honestly, is that a good enough idea? If you had that idea, would that be a good enough idea to play with? Well, I, I think you would need... Here's what you would need. You would need to really develop the character of the sentient gas. Yes. That would be the better uh, to, way to go, yeah. Yeah, and so you would need a backstory that explains how this gas came into existence and self-consciousness. Or you, if you were a professor, scientist, lab technician cautioning MC Hammer about this, or, or MC Hammer maybe is the scientist – you need to develop a role for MC Hammer within the constraints of the scientific community. Is he somebody who would be very tempted to touch something over and over and over? And is this, in fact, a reminder to himself? Yeah, and somehow, I mean, and then you'd have to play where to bring in the billowy pants. Is it, was that a past experiment gone wrong? Is right. it uh, indicative right. of it? I think it's probably what a psychologist might call a heuristic in that we anchor ourselves to MC Hammer's pants and we think that has greater meaning. But I don't know. The pants somehow have to come to play. But I think we have the scaffolding of another great item yeah. here, John. There's something brewing here. And I would be remiss if I ever wrote anything about Hammer that did not incorporate the phrase, please, Hammer, don't hurt him. <laughs> right. And in the middle of it, it could just stop because yeah. of... And then it would be Hammer time. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, there would be a, a question of, of whether... Uh, what level of legitimacy it had reached and whether... Whether it was a low enough level that it would be okay to knock off for a while, or if it's in fact too legit, too legit to quit. <laughs> oh, I like that. This John... is what happens. This is my brain all day long. It's a curse. <laughs> John Moe is the author of 
Dear Luke, we need to talk Darth and other pop culture correspondences. Thank you, John. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. Former Vice President Dick Cheney has been making the rounds on television. He was fresh off of writing an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal that read in part, Rarely has a U.S. president been so wrong about so much at the expense of so many. So there is Dick Cheney channeling his inner Churchill. Only Churchill had a different relationship with war, i.e. he won it. Of course, if Dick Cheney is offered to you as a guest and you're a TV booker, I mean, you got to take Dick Cheney, right? So there's Dick Cheney, who, when you think about it, actually could offer some insight about the war in Iraq if his theme was what I learned or what we did wrong. But instead, his theme was I was right, and the interviews had moments like this. I was a strong supporter then of going into Iraq. I'm a strong supporter now. Everybody knows what my position is. There's nothing to be argued about there. But if we spend our time debating what happened 11 or 12 years ago, we're going to miss the threat that is growing and that we do face. But why stop there, I thought? Why limit your talk show to Dick Cheney on how to win the war in Iraq? This is a great programming opportunity, so I am debuting the pilot of a new show right here, right now. For some reason, I hear it as like this high-minded BBC show. I don't know why, but cue the music as I make the introduction. Hello and welcome to Least Qualified, a talk show where we talk to the least qualified person to speak on any subject on earth. Today on Least Qualified, the subject film dialogue and our special guest, George Lucas. Mr. Lucas, you are an avowed fan of film, a student of film. Certainly most of the films you watch don't have leaden, bloated, childish dialogue, though most of your work is characterized by that. Harrison Ford once intoned, George, you can type this shit, but you sure as hell can't say it. Certainly, Mr. Lucas, you've gotten some form of feedback on the fact that your characters speak like they're reading shampoo instructions. Perhaps your peers or your parents or your teachers or even the culture at large has told you you write awful dialogue. So I think it's very important not to do what your peers think you should do, not do what your parents think you should do or your teachers, but to do what you inside or even your culture thinks, but do what's inside you. Very well. Next on Least Qualified, we have the American rapper and hip-hop artist Kanye West here to talk about humility. Kanye, what keeps you grounded? I am a god. Thank you, sir. Now on Least Qualified... Taste. For years it was thought there were five tastes. Sweet, salty, bitter, sour. But recently a fifth taste has been identified. Umami. The taste buds open up a world of sensuous but subtle pleasures. And here to discuss this on Least Qualified. Hey Guy Fieri here. Mr. Fieri, can you help us navigate our way through the wondrous miracle that is the human palate? Smokiness, sweetness, big seasoning, big flavor. Ah, you gotta check this out. 
Next week on Least Qualified, we'll talk to Michael Bay about minimalism, Woody Allen about blended families, Maureen Dowd about altered states of consciousness, Steve Jobs about pastels, the insane clown posse about electromagnetism, and U.S. men's national team stalwart Jeff Cameron about sure-footedness in the defensive zone. But now, a special guest, a guest that listeners to Least Qualified have been demanding for years, Dick Van Dyke on doing the English accent. If somebody from the UK sees me, they're on me like a pack of bulls. Uh, I mean, it was the worst Cockney accent ever done. Spot on, governor, and good show. I have much to learn from you, Mr. Van Dyke. This has been Least Qualified. And that is it for this week's show. Andrea Salenzi, producer of Slate Podcasts, is teaching a course at the Learning Annex called How to Fill All the Empty Hours of Your Workday. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, Combs. You can subscribe on iTunes and give us a review. There are a few up already. We love them. You can search for Slate Gist in, say, Stitcher um, or TuneIn. We'll be the Slate Daily podcast feed, but if you subscribe to us directly... That's a much better way for us to tell the world that uh, our podcast is listenable and one of the top. Send us an email if you would like. We're at thegist@slate.com. We'll send you an email if you want it every day when the show is up. And you can sign up for that at slate.com slash gist email. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash slate gist. We'll put that far video up there. You know... Being a quarterback taught me the value of picking up the weak side linebacker in a disguised three-shell defense. And that's why I say vote no on ratifying the Law of the Sea Treaty. And thanks for listening. Rock and roll.